This is the MagicWordPodcast.com. Hello, this is Scott Wells for the MagicWordPodcast.com. This week's episode is brought to you again by the Friends of the Magic Word. Those are the ones who, with their financial donations and monthly pledges, help keep this podcast going month after month and week after week because without uh, your financial help, it would be difficult to try to keep this going. And it also encourages me to know there are listeners out there who care enough to put their money where their ears are. So thank you guys uh, and gals for doing that. And if any of you are interested in learning how you can become a friend of The Magic Word and why it is that we could use your support, uh, just go over to themagicwordpodcast.com and there you'll see a little tab that will say, join the friends of The Magic Word. Anyhow, check that out. This week's episode is going to feature Mark James, who has been a friend of mine for quite some time, although we had not physically shaken hands nor met until we were at the Magi Fest earlier this year in 2023 in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And he uh, is, uh, when we sat down, just opened up about everything. It was tremendous. Now, this gentleman is a true worker that has worked 10,000 hours to be the expert that he is in his field. And he shares a pretty good synopsis of his lecture in this week's episode. We also talk about a variety of things, including tattoos and why he has tattoos and what kind of tattoos he has. In fact, if you go to the magicwordpodcast.com, there you'll see some photos that I had taken of the tattoos on his arms and legs that uh, are mostly magic related, kind of interesting then as well. So you can take a look at those uh, on on the webpage. And also he talks about uh, working in holiday camps, which is not something that is familiar necessarily to the United States audience, but is a bigger deal in the UK. Specifically, these are places, as they imply, it's a vacation or a holiday camp when you go for a weekend or a week that you would stay in a bunk or whatever, and they have activities all day long. I, w- I would probably call it something more like a land cruise, I guess. There are things like that in the United States that might be like dude ranches. We used to have something like that in the Poconos in e- eastern United States where people would go for the holidays uh, during summer in particular from New York City to kind of exit the city and go to the mountains where it might be a little bit cooler. But uh, this is a place where there are a lot of uh, entertainers that uh, that work that circuit. Anyhow, he talks a little bit about that as well as I think it's kind of interesting that he has been a very busy restaurant magician. We've talked here on numerous occasions in the past about how there are not necessarily a lot of restaurant magicians in the UK, although weddings is very big for magicians but uh, not so much uh, restaurants because tipping is something that's kind of an anomaly, I guess, to uh, the U.S., but not necessarily to other countries. Anyhow, a lot of stuff to cover uh, this week, and uh, you might want to take out a pencil and paper to jot down some notes because he, as I said, with the 10,000-plus hours he has of experience and the things he shares, you you might want to uh, take note, quite literally, so that you can help apply that to your act. So let me introduce our guest this week, Mr. Mark James, here on The Magic Word. Today I'm with a Brit from across the pond. I always like saying that. Actually, are we across the pond or are you across the pond? Well, technically, know. we're both across the pond to <laughs> me right now. That's right. <laughs> and this is someone uh, who I 
have known for quite some time. And although we have just physically met and uh, shaken hands and hugged each other, I've known him for such a while. We've talked uh, before, and uh, he's 37 now, and had been working uh, cruise ships, and particularly in a lot of what they call holiday camps uh, around the coast of England. Uh, He is from England, and uh, he's over in the States then right now. And this, I believe, as we are speaking at the Magi Fest, this is your first convention in the United States. And so we're speaking here right now. Uh, Please welcome my guest, Mr. Mark James. Hey there, Mark. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) I feel happy to be welcomed. You're right. It is my first convention in the U.S. I've worked a bunch of times here before at the Magic Castle a few times, House of Cards once, the Chicago Magic Lounge once. Um, I went to, I did Penguin Live a couple of times, but as far as conventions go, yeah, this is my first time here and it, the pressure to come here to do a convention is just on another level. Were you expecting this size of an audience? Well, I did. And I say there's a thousand here for those who don't know. Yeah, I guess, um, I guess if I was coming direct from home, having not performed at another convention a week ago, mm-hmm. I probably would have expected it. But I did the session convention, which Vanishing Inc. also run, and there were 500 people at that. And I guess I thought that they were identical. So when I turned up and I walked into the room, and I, of course I'm no <laughs> stranger for performing for 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people. That, it, didn't, it blew my mind that it was at a convention. You know, I walked into the performance room and I said, these seats are not going to be full, are they? Are all, are all these people going to come in? And they said, yeah, it'll be pretty much full most of the time. And so that blew my mind. I didn't expect that it would be 1,000 people at a convention. And so on uh, Friday night, was it Friday night? Friday night or it Thursday was Thursday night. Thursday night, night. Thursday I, night yeah. I performed my full show, my current show, which is called Instant Magic. I performed that for that room of 1,000 magicians, and it was just... I think aside from I lectured at Blackpool in 2016, uh-huh. the, and, and they are the two most magicians I ever performed for at a single time. And so it, it felt pretty crazy. But what I will say, comparative, Blackpool is a great convention, but it's such a mixed crowd of Europeans, and there's a bunch of you know Brits, but then there's some Americans too. The audiences are huge, but here... The warmth is something quite different. The audience, yeah, it's much more like performing for a regular crowd here in that it's magicians, but it feels like a regular audience. There's a real warmth and laughing at the jokes. And it's like, we're quite cynical, aren't we, magicians as a rule? (laughs) And you can feel that a lot of the time at standard lectures and at other conventions. But all I can say about this one is it's just been so warm. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, the weather's been terrible, but the the warmth of the audience has been wonderful. I wonder if that has to do with the culture and the language barrier, perhaps when particularly you're in Blackpool. I know there are different people, as you said, who are European, who have English as a second or third language. And so they might even have an Interpreters who are interpreting your, uh, yeah. you know, English into German or Italian or something over there. Then as well, my point being is perhaps they don't get the immediacy of some of the jokes and everything. Yeah. Uh, so there might be a cultural difference as opposed to everybody speaking English here. Obviously, I think that's definitely a thing. Although, as they often say, the UK and America are two places separated by a common, <laughs> by a common language. Common language, yeah. And of course, I found that out in my show when I had a huge thing come on the screen that said, <laughs> "Take out your phone and turn on the torch," and everyone said, "What the hell is a torch?" <laughs> And, I, and someone shouted, you mean flashlight? And I said, well, it's called English, but fine, I'll apologize. Yeah, the flashlight. So, uh, And I had that a lot in my lecture today, you know, uh-huh. g- switching between the two vocabularies. And my best friend is a, a guy called Taylor Hughes, who a lot of people will know. Mm-hmm. He's from California, and I speak to him every day. And so I do kind of have a, 
an American vocabulary that I slip into yeah. when I talk to him, but flashlight just slipped right by me. <laughs> and, and even you hadn't changed that on the slide. I hadn't changed right. it on the slide yet. And I even, I did a, I do a date prediction mm-hmm. and I remembered to switch around the format because of course in the UK, we would say the 26th of August would be 26 one, you know, 2023. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, of course, it's one 26, 2023. Yeah. And so I remembered to switch everything around so that I predicted the date as Americans would expect it. Right. But I just didn't catch, and it's in the same trick. I just didn't catch the flashlight torch because, of course, here a torch means a burning stake or something <laughs> like that. Right. You know? That reminds me, there was a thing in David Berglis's book that was some sort of a magic square or something. I'd forgotten, but it had to do with dates, and it was in the English format. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Banachek and I were over many years ago for Blackpool, and we uh, had lunch with David Berglis. We got his book, and we were coming back. He, Banachek spent the entirety of the flight working out how to do this in an American style, so yeah. he did. Well, the trick that I did, predicting the date, is actually, in the American format, it's way better, because hmm. for the whole of January, the first number is going to be one. And that's huge when you're predicting a six or seven digit number. Mm-hmm. If the if the first number, if the if the total number is going to be one million, then tomorrow it's going to be two million. Whereas when I do it, uh, sorry, sorry, when I do it, it's one million, then two million, then three, then four. Mm-hmm. And by the time I get to the end of the month, the, the first number is thirty one or twenty eight or something like that. Right. Whereas for here, you have a whole month where the first number is one then a whole month where the first number is two. And it's only the last three months of the year where you end up with a two-digit thing to worry about. So mm-hmm. actually, it's way more dependable doing it in the American format if you're predicting the date and you're using mathematical techniques or apps or anything like that. I'd w- I wish that the British way was flipped around now. <laughs> well, that is an excellent trick, and I've seen a couple of the magicians do that as well, coming right down and saying, and the last thing is the time, look at your watch, and it's yeah. exactly to the minute. That is obviously a commercial effect. It's a, it's, it's a, whose is that? It's a commercial effect, but it's not one that, I, that I'm talking about right now. Okay, yes. It's going to be really well known soon, though. Okay. It's coming out, but while nobody knows about it, I'm enjoying keeping that secret. <laughs> the secrecy of it. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it is a, a great one because a lot of people who were in the audience I was talking with us later said, completely fooled me. There are a few things, obviously, cups and ball, or chop cup and some other things. It's a chop cup. Yeah. Your presentation is stellar. I mean, you. as you said, that you have 10, more than 10,000 hours of, of flight time with that. In oh, fact, gosh, I was talking yeah. with someone else who was saying, I remember seeing this on YouTube when he was young. He must have been a teenager or something. Oh, yeah. At the, the time, time when I, the first time that that video went online, it was part of a DVD set that I did for RSVP Productions run by Russ Stevens in the UK. And it was the first time magicians ever saw me do anything. And it was a close-up magic DVD. Mm -hmm. And it came off the back of... I was working for Wayne Dobson on his stand at Blackpool, demonstrating for him, because I worked permanently for Mark Mason. I was an employee in his magic store. Because you lived in Blackpool. Because I lived in Blackpool, yeah. And and actually, I lived in Blackpool because I wanted to work in Mark's magic store. Those Mm. two things came together at the same time. And... The problem with working for Mark Mason at a magic convention is that nobody wants to see someone who isn't Mark Mason. As you say, they don't see Mark James, they see Mark Mason. Yeah, they, they, Mark <laughs> You're halfway is, there, but you don't have the Mason part. <laughs> that's it. Along with, Paul, I think Paul Richards and Mark Mason are just the two mm. most incredible demonstrators of magic yeah. that we have, you know, alive today. Mm-hmm. And Mark has such a, a, a huge personality and way that he demonstrates that. If someone comes to the stall and I demonstrate the tricks, they're going to be disappointed because they want him. They come for that experience too, and he's so funny. So there was never any reason for me to work for Mark at the convention, mm-hmm. even though I worked in his store. But Mark said, why don't you help Wayne out like Wayne needs, you know, some assistance at the convention demonstrating. So I did. And by complete coincidence, 
Wayne's stand was next door to Russ Stevens' stand. And Russ saw me demonstrating for magicians, getting laughs, and all the stuff that I did working in a magic store. You know, the, yeah. the way that you learn to explain things to magicians and just crossing that bridge. And Russ said, have you got any of your own stuff? And I said, well, I do a restaurant three times a week for three hours a night. So I'm doing nine hours a week of close-up magic. Mm -hmm. And I have all of the stuff that I'm doing there. And he said, well, show it to me. So we went for lunch, and I performed my, you know, 12 tricks and he said okay let's make a dvd this month and that's what we did and wow. the chop cup was on it and i put it online and, and it the chop cup was kind of it's always been popular but it had a, a little bit of a resurgence off the back of that i think and and off the back of martin sanderson a british magician at the same time he put chop cup on a dvd and that picked it up and so it's one of those tricks that it's just so strong it's perfect trick format and um from back then i would have been like you said i'm 37 and that was when i was 22 Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. How um, many views have they had? Millions, I'm assuming. Well, my YouTube channel got deleted at one point when it was oh. really high hit. So I don't know anymore, but it's it's in the hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I've just always loved the trick. And I did it a bunch then. And when I came to doing a stand-up act, I've always said the very best thing you can do if you want to do stand-up is, well, what do I already have that can transfer? And so the close-up was the first thing through the door and it's, it's still hanging on. It's right. never, I can't take it out. It's just, you know, it's such a part of me that um, it basically is in every show. Right. Uh, well, speaking of which, that you do a lot of shows and working holiday camps, as yeah. they call them in the UK and over here. I, I don't have, we don't really have anything like that except maybe in the Poconos or something. The only way I could explain that to an American audience is like the, the kind of place, you know, the movie Dirty Dancing. Mm -hmm. It's like that, really. Mm -hmm. But but with families going there, you know, and, and a more modern British audience. But essentially going there and staying in log cabins or what you would refer to as a trailer, we would call a caravan. But without, I believe that in America there's, there's it, that phrase comes with a lot of baggage. There's a trailer culture in America that's like, Correct. Yeah. and people live in them on in things. And we have that in the UK. There's a derogatory term of trailer trash. And yeah, they yeah. think about uh, trailer parks always being swept away by tornadoes and they're just made out of nothing basically and so in, in yeah. the uk it doesn't really carry that same baggage Stigma, and, right. and they're really nice they're luxury trailers sure. and they may have two three four even five bedrooms in some of them and you know big living spaces kitchens all of that and so yeah. i lived in a trailer okay. in college and when i first got married my wife and i had one you yeah, know, yeah. we call them mobile homes right <laughs> well well these are these are that but they're static they're yeah. drilled into the ground yeah and so they never move, but they are really nice. And you'll get an area, a seaside town like Blackpool, for instance, may dotted around the coast have even three or four of these. One seaside town might have three or four of these. And so people will go and, in it, and one of these places will have 500 of these trailers on it. Wow. But what it will also have is a complex which has got a swimming pool. It has arcades, an ice cream parlor, five or six restaurants. Uh, but the main thing it will have is a theater space. And it will, but the theater space, it's cabaret seating. You know, people will sit around circular tables and all of that in a huge, maybe a thousand seat room but with circular tables and they can go in there during the day and see kids activities they might do painting pottery or you know they might do right. games and things but then generally the venue closes and then it opens again at 6 p.m on the evening and it stays open until 1 a.m and in that seven hours that it's open what you will generally see is like um 
kids dance music and party dancing where the kids will go on the dance floor and they'll copy the resident entertainment team mm -hmm. like on a cruise ship doing you know choreographed dancing then there'll be a quiz then there'll be some sort of um, presentation where the, the presenter who's resident on the park will go out with a costume character like Mickey Mouse or you know but their sure. own ones they're called Bradley Bear and Rory the Tiger and things like that but essentially yeah. they're, they're equivalent to Mickey Mouse right. and so they'll do a sketch with them and they'll be pre-recorded vocal of the character speaking and the presenter will interact with that pre-recorded vocal and the character will go along with it. And then at the end of that, there'll be another thing and another thing. And then essentially, at the pinnacle of the night, 9 p.m., there's either going to be a resident team doing a Broadway-style production, singing hmm. and dancing show, or two to three nights a week, they will bring in outside entertainment. And so that's when I slip in. So right. I'll go to a town and I will perform Monday one place, Tuesday another place, Wednesday another place, Thursday the final place. Straight after the show Thursday, I drive back home, which of course in the UK is easy to do. Right. And so every night at 9 p.m., I'm in a different venue, which is cookie cutter, almost identical to the place I performed last night mm -hmm. with the same tech, the same style of team. And I've been doing those for so long now that everybody who, who are the you know cruise directors, essentially the entertainment managers, we call them, I've known them since the beginning of their careers. Yeah. So I turn up and I'm always amongst friends mm -hmm. and I always can, you know, put my QLab in and plug my mic in all of the things that it's like touring. But in a resident venue, it's hard to explain, <laughs> but it's super fun. And I always have great tech and I know what the audience are going to be like. The demographic is identical. And honestly, I do among the few cruise ships that I do occasionally and things for magicians, they really make up the highest percentage of what for me is about 200 shows a year. Wow. It's, a, it's just a crazy diary of, you know, four or five shows a week most of the time. And it's all the way from like Blackpool all along the southern coast and past Wales and around over to Dover? I mean, how... how yeah, I mean, well, from Blackpool, it's... I mean, if you, you live in Texas, right? So yeah. you can oh drive... <laughs> yeah, you can drive for eight hours in Texas and you're still in Texas. Yeah, and then you Whereas, take a break and drive another six hours. Yeah, if you drive eight hours in... England at some point you're going to have to start swimming I mean there's no way you can drive from my house right. in eight hours that you're not at the coast mm -hmm. so but most places from my house I can get to London in four hours I can be in Scotland in two hours I can be in Wales in one hour mm -hmm. it's just the the geography of the UK is such that it really is possible to get almost anywhere and the freeways are good you know the A1 and everything along the way or they I mean they seem to be they're pretty good yeah good I mean you know apart highways. from those times when the summer, the holidays, you know, the vacation times, yeah. of course, the roads are much busier, especially on Fridays and Mondays, which are the check-in day for people on vacation when they go. Those, That's those what I was going to ask you. Is it just certain months out of the year that this is your high season or they're closed during certain months? I assume yeah. just much like the Poconos would be. So the holiday parks, they open typically in March and they close at the first week of November. Okay. So it's a, it's Pretty a good huge, season. Yeah, it's a long season. And then in the November, December, I will typically go into, you know what a British pantomime is? I do. But so most so, people don't, so go ahead with this. Yeah, so a pantomime is kind of, they take the story of something like Aladdin or Cinderella or mm. Snow White, things that we now understand to be classic Disney stories. Of course, many of them go back before, before Disney. But they take those classic stories and they turn them into a sort of sketch-based um, comedy singing and dancing show. And a lot of times they will have males dressed as uh, females. Yeah, so there's a, there's a kind of a British pantomime tradition of the dame. And the dame is usually a fairly grotesque character. <laughs> and if you look at, say, the story of Aladdin, mm -hmm. 
the way that they make the show work, it's not exactly true to what you would understand the Aladdin story to be. So Aladdin is the main character, but Aladdin also has a annoying younger brother. And the annoying younger brother is called Wishy Washy. And <laughs> Aladdin and his brother Wishy Washy have a mother who is called the Widow Twanky. And the Widow Twanky <laughs> is the dame, and they are always played by a man, and they usually wear very oversized... I mean, it's probably the last vestige of political correctness, a lot yes. of this stuff. In the world. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're dressed as, you know, grotesque, giant-sized women with incredibly complex costumes. I mean, I did that show once, and the Widow Twanky, she basically runs a laundrette. You know, she runs a laundry. Okay. And that's the family business, so to speak. And the plot of the show will be that Aladdin spots the Princess Jasmine at some point and wants to be uh -huh. in love with her. But um, he's being chased by a police officer who is another comedy character throughout the show. And his brother... Wishy-washy, which is the character I typically play, they're the only character in the show that speaks directly to the audience the whole time. Okay. So what would happen in the show is that I would come out on stage and say, watch your kids, you know, and I would have some sort of, um, maybe I would have a puppet. I've done it before. Where I've had a puppet of a dragon. And I would mm -hmm. say, this is my best friend. He's a dragon. And I would do some jokes and I would say, you know, um, I'm going to leave him over here at the side of the stage. But if anybody goes near him, you let me know. You shout wishy-washy and I'll come running out. And that becomes a device that helps a lot of the show along. Right. So maybe the police officer will walk out and he'll look at the audience and say, what are you horrible lot doing? Do some jokes <laughs> and things like that. And then he'll say, what's this dragon doing here? And the kids will shout wishy-washy and I come running out. And then... The police officer and I will essentially be involved in a two-hander sketch mm -hmm. with, you know, funny jokes and things like, but very silly things, you know, where I'll say something about the way the police officer's dressed and the police officer will say, I haven't come out here to be insulted. And I say, well, where do you usually go? You know, <laughs> yeah. those kind of puns and silly jokes and things. So um, we do all of that stuff. And... The show progresses with storyline interjected in all of it. Right. And then also there'll be, you know, the princess will come on and Aladdin will see her and say, gosh, I wish I could, you know, be in love with her. And then he'll start to sing a song. And while he's singing, the rest of the cast will run out the dancers and singers and it becomes a whole production thing. And, and usually in those shows, they will repurpose, they get the license for, and they repurpose popular songs. Oh, mm -hmm. But they will change the lyrics. The satirical lyrics. Of, yeah. yeah. So I've been in ones where... Um, the, there's the genie but there's also the slave of the lamp or two characters and in the one I did they sang a modified version of you and me but mostly me from the book of Mormon and then that slips into something else and they use loads of and when they're in the Aladdin's cave they sing um, Diamonds I think the Jesse J song or, or, or I don't remember which pop star so yeah and they're really fun and they Basically, most theatres in the UK, that's how they survive. Because from the beginning of November till the first week of January, they will run the show twice a day, every day, apart from a single day of the week, the theatre will be dark. And um, they sell it out. If the theatre is 1,500 seats, they sell 1,500 tickets every single performance. And that's performance not along the coast. That's throughout England and, and, and pretty various much, communities. Pretty much every single town in the entirety of the UK. So do you stay in one place during that period? You go to one place, yeah. Okay, guys are going to say you don't jump from one town to another. No, no. And, and they're kind of, they have levels, much like, you know, the football league system or something, or the soccer league system. Mm -hmm. There are provincial towns that will have very small ones that use community theatre. And then you have slightly bigger shows that will use reasonably paid professional performers and then there might be 50 or so around the UK that are huge productions and like they will the have the Premier League yeah, yeah and they'll have television celebrities in them as, as and, and they're the ones I'm typically in yeah. so I'll be in a t I'll be in a show and I'll be playing the funny character but the princess or 
Um, there's also Abanazi, you know, the evil character. And that, well, the last one I did, the guy who played him was Colin Baker, who previously had played Doctor Who. He was the sixth Doctor oh, yeah. in Doctor Who. Yeah, right, right. Someone who's well-known from being in... Um, what's the thing that you have that's like our Love Island? Like... Um, Jersey Shore or something like that. Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that people who've been in those will often be in them or, sure. you know, soap actors. And Some popular like character from the BBC that people would recognize yeah. them right away then, too. Now, when you are working in these holiday camps and you say you kind of rotate around, when you go back to the same place, yeah. do you have a different show then? Always the same for one year because the audience are always different. Oh, the audience is different. Gotcha. They're rotating. And so when you come back yeah. to the same show, that makes so much sense so, because so, you were talking in your lecture how that you change different shows each year. Right. Then, but that's each year, not each week. Yeah. yeah. So so in the in the pantomime situation, there might be, there's like 12 popular pantomimes, Cinderella, Snow White, you know, Aladdin, those things. Okay. And a, and a theater will generally rotate those year on year in a six or seven year rotation. So mm-hmm. you see... Aladdin in this theater now in seven years you'll see Aladdin again but with a different cast Right. but for that year it's that show and it's the same cast and the same show every single day but when I say the big production I mean like Paul Keeve, who did the um, right. stuff on Harry Potter and in the West End, he will consult on the things and they'll have, hmm. you know, there'll be a flying wow. carpet and it'll be a $300,000 flying carpet that they fly out across the audience like a huge Broadway it's show. A big, big or deal, yeah. They're a big deal, yeah. Or like the Back to the Future theater show where the car flies and turns over upside down. Right. They do that in Aladdin with the flying carpet and the characters are hooked to it and it goes upside down and it flies in the audience. And the twins effects who, you know, make stuff for film and theater, mm-hmm. they, they're in the part of the budget for that. So they're a, they're a pretty big deal in the UK. But as far as the holiday camps go, yeah, I tour around maybe, I work for a company that has 36 of those. And so I'll basically do all 36 of those and then I go back to the first one again. That's a nice gig. Uh, yeah, across like a six or seven week rotation. So I might do six a week for six weeks. I did all 36. Right. I take a week off. I start again. I would like to ask a little bit, changing the subject, you mentioned just briefly about working restaurants then as well. I often think of restaurants being more popular, obviously, in the U.S. for magicians to work than they are yeah. in the U.K. because they don't tip in the U.K. the way they do in the U.S. That's right, yeah. Is that one of the reasons why they don't have magicians working in restaurants well, I typically mean, over there? or It's funny. I can say that I did three restaurants per week for every week of the year for maybe two and a half, three years. And I got paid by the restaurant to do that. Right. But I think that of all those tables I did, I mean, gosh, could I have done seven, eight thousand tables in that time? Hmm. I maybe got offered a tip two, three times. Wow. The entire time. Wow. The tipping is tipping is part of the culture in the UK, but only in very, very specific circumstances. Hmm. Like you would tip, um, you might tip, at the end of your meal, so say your meal was, you know, $105, you might round it up to 110 but that would be it. You know, people... So not a lot. They don't think like 20% or 15 no, no, or whatever. No, not in any sense. Okay. And I'm a pretty good tipper. You know, if I had a $105 meal, I would pay 120 mm-hmm. And that would be considered, if someone else at the dinner saw me do that, they'd say... You realize Mate, you... they'd be shocked, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I'm pretty used now to that American tipping culture, sure. and I feel bad. And and if the ser- but the service is not like in America. There's no kind of incentive to, for really great service. So we have service with a sneer. We say, you know, you get <laughs> if you get delivered the food at all, it was great service. Let alone <laughs> if it came with, with a smile too. Yeah. <laughs> so um, no, uh, magicians don't really get tipped at, at shows at all, but. Also, the restaurants, they pay not bad money for the magicians. And also, the servers in restaurants get paid 
you know, they should technically get paid a living wage so they right. don't rely on tips either. Which is, again, opposite of what they do in the U.S. And I think other countries, like Australia and European countries, I think in general, do pay their servers, or I should say service personnel, yeah. uh, a, a living wage as opposed to in the U.S. Oftentimes they will pay less than the minimum wage yeah. thinking, okay, this will encourage you to work harder to get a tip, which is to ensure prompt service. That's right. And yeah. they thinking, okay, well, they're going to make equal to whatever they would have gotten or more if they really work hard. But we're not going to give them a living wage. Yeah. But over there, it seems like they do pay a living wage. And so that's why they're not expecting a tip. A tip is like, okay, it's fine. So you don't get anything yeah. out of that. And I'm sure that there are probably pluses and minuses to both. I bet there are places, venues and restaurants and bars in the U.S. that people are absolutely queuing up to work because they can make so much money sure. with tips. Sure. Uh, but that's just not a huge part of U.K. culture. Right. Now, aside from that, then going just directly to working restaurants, uh, are there many restaurants where they do have magicians working in the U.K. or not? I, I think I tend to think not. It's a mix because there are oh. a bunch of chains, you know, like uh, oh. we have sort of we of course we have the chains that are fast food restaurants but we have you know chains like um what's the one i love here that's uh the Cheesecake Factory, you know, there's no, chains that are factory. equivalent sure. to that. Sure. Okay. And they might have magicians, and so they might for a year have magicians in all of them. Or then right. sometimes you might get an enterprising manager who likes magic and decides to put it in. Or mm -hmm. you may get a private restaurant that has them. But it's not – the main market for magicians in the UK, close to magicians, is weddings. That's the That was what I was going ultimately about yeah. that because I just had spoken recently then with Kyle Purnell, and he was saying that one of his goals is to try to work more with weddings because he said yeah. I know how big they are in the UK and I said man I wish you all the luck but I've tried as hard as I can and, and I was, have not been able to break into the, the wedding market in the US and yeah. I just I, I don't know why it's different over there than it is here but what I think is you have longer wedding days and you have like breakfast oh, yeah. and I mean, lunches the, and dinners and a bunch of weddings in the UK you would expect the couple to get married about 11am 12 you know in the afternoon yeah. and then they'll go immediately from the wedding into T typically, most people in the UK, if they have a wedding and they're inviting 120, 130 guests, they'll actually only invite 40 or 50 of those guests for the, to meal. the actual ceremony. Oh, the ceremony. Yeah, and then the ceremony directly follows into a meal that they're paying a per head price for in, mm -hmm. a, in a venue that's very, very close to the, where the wedding happened. And that's called the wedding breakfast. And there will be a three-course meal there. And during that meal, often magicians will perform. Mm -hmm. Or they will have the wedding breakfast, and then there'll be a two-hour period between the evening entertainment beginning, when all of the other guests will join. And in that period, the couple will go and get photographs, and some people will go and get refreshed if they're staying in the hotel where the wedding is. But that's often when the magician will cover that two-hour space to keep those guests entertained. And um, then the evening event will start, and that's when everybody comes. And that's just a typical disco party with a band. Yeah. And, you know, and it's hard to do magic when you've got that loud music playing, of course. Very difficult, yeah. But I've heard of some magicians, again, doing the same wedding twice in the same day. It's like, you know, we're going to do the breakfast, and then we're going to come back then later. Yeah, it's, it's becoming really popular now. There's a guy in the UK who's really bringing this alive called Paul Martin and he has a wedding course and he sells it to people that he teaches them how to become hmm. an integral part of the entire wedding day you know he's the MC essentially so quite often when you're doing a wedding and I haven't done one for 10 years so it's probably changed but when you're doing a wedding they'll also be what we call a toastmaster sure. and they will kind of be huh. the person who introduces the next segment of things but more and more now magicians are taking over that role too to increase you know their value mm -hmm. and so they'll do magic during the wedding 
breakfast, but then they'll also do magic in the interim, and then they'll perform for the evening guests too. And sometimes that will involve a short cabaret spot as well. And a lot of the guys who are doing that are quadrupling their fee to be there the whole day. Right. But they're cutting their travel, and of course, they're not performing the entire day. They're performing, and then they're having a three-hour break, and then they're performing, and they're having a right. two-hour break. And so they're going to one venue and spending the whole day and selling that for you know, a couple of thousand dollars for the day, I guess, mm -hmm. when a typical wedding fee is, is less than that in the UK. But if you're selling yourself for the whole day, then they do pretty well. Well, I am curious. Do they charge by the hour or by the event over there? By the event, typically, yeah. I and would what's say typical? I mean, you're, you're talking like 500 pounds or 100 I, pounds? I mean, what's reasonable over there for a, a, an event? Just I, say one. Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know that I know that because, like I said, my best friend, Taylor Hughes, lives in California, and when we talk about the fees that he charges for corporate events, mm -hmm. often he's he can do an event for what I might make in a couple of months, really, you know, like events here. It varies, are, I know, from place yeah, to place. If he's going to, because he does a lot of event hosting as well. So if he says like, oh, I'm going to um, Dallas to host a four-day conference, and I go, oh, is it a good gig? And he'll tell me the money, and I'm like... That's gonna buy a car. Insane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then he also is like, well, you know, our health insurance is $2,000 a month and the you know mortgage right. or the rents. And, and so... Everything costs so much. The cost of living here is way higher because, of course, in the UK, we don't have health insurance. It's free. You know, health care right. is free. And the rents are so much lower. And but your taxes your are higher. Um, you have, like, what, 50% tax or something No, ridiculous. no, our tax is, ba is 15%. 15%, okay. But, but it's 15% up until you make, like, $100,000. And then on everything you make over $100,000, it's 40%. Okay, that's what I was thinking. I yeah. remember talking with some people who were over that, uh, yeah, yeah. and they were in that ta higher tax. I mean, I remember that was why the Beatles had sung Tax Man. Oh, yeah. You know, because they didn't like no, having it's to a, pay. It's a graduated system, so you only pay that higher rate. But also, the first £12,000 that you earn is completely tax-free, mm -hmm. and then you pay 15% on everything over that. So you, we say it's 15%, but if you earn £20,000, you only paid... 15% on 18,000 of those 30,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. And then once you get up to 100,000, it goes higher. And so, yeah. so I think generally it's more expensive to live here. And so the fees are higher, but the wages are higher and, and everything here. Mm -hmm. It's basically the same. So if I say the fees that I believe are correct, it will sound unusual to an American audience as a percentage of what it would cost to live here. But I would expect that a typical wedding magician turning up and doing in the north of England and the south of England, again, are very different because mm. there's a real north-south divide in that. The mm. north of England is way more working class, yeah. whereas the south of England is way more middle class. Okay. Um, and so in the north of England, I would expect a wedding magician performing for two hours to charge 500, 550 pounds, equivalent to $650, I would say, is, yeah. a, is a two-hour wedding fee. Okay. And then if they're doing the whole day emceeing, I think 1,500 to 1,800 pounds, $2,000 would be close to expected, yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, there are so many different directions and things that I would like to talk to you, because you had mentioned during your lecture about movies, and I'm a big yeah. movie fanatic and I'm covered as well. In <laughs> are you, is that what the tattoos are? Every, Explain some of the things that are your tattoos there. Well, it's funny because I'm really, a, I, I think the most interesting things about us are our contradictions and so whenever I hear people say about their stage character my oh my character would never do that I always think well people do are things that are out of character all the time so sure. your character could do that and often the out of character thing that you do is what solidifies who your character really is mm -hmm. it's what puts that into focus so having something out of character I think is good and originality I think is tied into that because if you say I have a friend who's really unique you don't say they say words that no other person ever said before <laughs> or they invent they invented their own language we never say that when we talk about unique right. person and actually what is unique is 
when you say, I have this friend, they love the ballet, but they listen to Iron Maiden and Van Halen and they, you know, they have long hair and they wear, they're covered in tattoos or, right. you know, he loves the opera. Those contradictions are what make us unique. And, mm. and my act is full of those. But on stage, as you know, I tend to wear tweed suits right. and a tie. And I wear, dapper. I wear a three-piece suit, which is not always common with uh, what we would call a waistcoat of course you call a vest vest, Mm -hmm. and what we call trousers you would call pants Pants. and then also (laughs) we have braces that you call suspenders because braces for us are you know to corrective aids for dentures you know to correct your teeth um so the common language again comes in but i wear a three-piece suit with a vest and suspenders and um it's very old-fashioned my style of dress it's almost victorian vaudevillian and yet off stage i tend to I'm pretty hipster. I'd wear, you know, fairly hipster things, and I'm absolutely covered in tattoos, but you can't see my tattoos when I'm on stage because I, dra- no. I don't have any below the wrist or above the neck or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the back of my leg here, I have Robert Houdin's orange tree. Mm. Illusion, the entire back of my, um, of my right uh, calf is that. But all of my other tattoos are mm. movies because my show is full of movie references and to look at my tattoos this is all i realize the audience can't see this but right. they're all back to the future and we'll take some pictures of that and post this them is on the, the website zolta then. machine from oh, big, sure, and, big and this is holy moly a whole thing about et and then i have uh, a harry potter tattoo here that says always and scream and beetlejuice and uh, all of those things and the goonies and stand by me and all of this so i'm just covered anything in, from uh, uh, the alfred hitchcock because you'd mentioned that was one of your the alfred hitchcock thing is something that because it's such a big influence in my life and I love it so much. I've basically been saving this whole big space around here and, and it's going to come on here so I'm going to get a, a huge Alfred Hitchcock uh, tattoo that basically comprises all of his movies in mm-hmm. a single thing. So that's taking work but um, generally I mean I'm pretty... Maybe with a knife stabbing a bird. Yeah, that's you know? the thing. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not hugely sort of... Um, when people get tattoos, they freak out about the permanence of it. I mean, I have these three Stranger Things tattoos on my arm here in this space. Genuinely, what happened was I was getting this tattoo, a Silence of the Lamb's Moth, and it's quite big on the inside of my forearm. And um, while the tattooist was doing the tattoo, she got a text message and she said, uh, oh, my client after you just cancelled. And I said, how long did they have? And she said, oh, about 90 minutes. And I said, I'll take that. And she said, well, what do you want? And I said, I'll Google it. And so while she was tattooing me, I was Googling tattoos and thinking about what I loved. And I said, can we do something with the Stranger Things thing? And she went, yeah, give me five minutes. She designed it and I got it there and then. Like I put no thought into it at all other than the person after me got cancelled. And I took the time because I realized when I got that will my f- affect you the rest of your life. Well, well, there is that, but also, I sort of think when you grow old, people go, "Oh, what if you regret that when you're older?" Mm. But you you regret that you stood up too much when you're old. You regret that maybe you you know listened to too much loud music or sat close yeah. to. Being older is about the things that you regret and learning not to regret them. I think that's growth, and so there are tattoos that I have that I love. There are tattoos that I love that I could not. I realize in America you say could care less about, which is definitively the exact opposite of what you mean, and it always surprises me. And in England we say I couldn't care less, because of course what you're explaining is I am not able to care less about this thing. So when you say I could care less, what you're saying is I do care about this thing a little bit. Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of like what they talk about when two airlines uh, will almost hit each other, say it was a near miss. No, I mean, it was a near near collision. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I always think about that when I say this, but, you know, I have tattoos that I literally could not care less about. I Mm -hmm. sort of, I look at them and I think, 
it's just yeah, a thing. Okay, it's like, thing. and when you have so many as well, here's a funny example of it. Actually, my friend that took me for my first tattoo, he said to me, he said, I just got a new tattoo today and he showed me and it was a small pizza slice on the inside of his wrist. And I said to him, why would you get a pizza slice tattooed? That seems insane. And he went, don't know, just funny. You know, he just didn't care. <laughs> and I thought that was crazy. And then I went and I got a tattoo. And then I got another and another and another. And then the first time you get a tattoo on your forearm and you realize that people will see that when you wear a T-shirt, because mm -hmm. all of my others were behind even a T-shirt would cover sure. it. Once you get that one, that loosens up that idea a bit more in that, okay, I'm tattooed now. People can see that when I'm dressed casually. And then you care less and less and less. And now I think, no, oh, maybe I'll get a pizza slice. You know, it's like... Did you get one? I haven't gotten one okay. yet. But... um you know, I do have things that I literally just got to make my friends laugh. Like my son loves series of unfortunate events and the main character has a tattoo of like an eye that suggests they're part of a secret society. It's the volunteer fire department. Mm -hmm. And I have that eye on the inside of my ankle where Neil Patrick Harris's character has it in the series of unfortunate right. events Netflix right. thing. And I literally got it so that when I went home, I was on tour and I got it at the same tattooist I always get. Every six weeks, I'm at the same holiday park and the tattooist that I like is there. So I get tattooed, tattooed wow. every mm -hmm. six weeks. And I I literally got the tattoo i went home i never mentioned it and i was sitting in my son's room and i sat in the armchair that's in his room that he reads in and i put my feet up on the end of his bed and he looked down and he spotted the tattoo on my ankle and he said daddy what's that and he like freaked out he thought it was so funny <laughs> so and cool. i have that on my ankle for the rest of my life yeah. but it was worth it for that moment it's like <laughs> they're sort of snapshots of things that i love and i think magicians will appreciate this especially i love movies but I love them so much that I love them so much that watching them and having posters of them on my wall is not enough. I need to have them on me all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like the ultimate expression of that thing that I love more than anything else. It's not enough to just buy the figurines or have the poster on my wall. I, I, that's how I love the thing more. It's always here with me. Right, right. I, I do want to move over into your lecture and some of the things that you had talked about as well, because there were so many points that you had talked about, and that is the structure of the uh, of the act and uh, the different points that uh, you were making. I really don't know where to begin. I was taking pictures rather than taking notes because you right. had the uh, uh, those on the screen. Uh, but what would you say are with, within kind of a five-minute synopsis would be uh, an explanation of some of the high points of what you would say in your lecture. If people were wanting to book your lecture, if you were going to be doing something, Gosh, what, yeah. what would be kind of an elevator pitch? What, what are you t talking about? Well, the lecture that you saw me do at this convention, I suppose, is slightly different to the lecture that I would give at a, at a magic society. Yeah. Because typically at a magic society, what I know is that I learned this from Mark Mason. There is real things that, that magicians want and learning magic is very low down the list actually at a, at a lecture what they really want is to go have a great time be really entertained by somebody who's a good performer and it's going to make them laugh and to see some things that they can integrate into the magic that they're already doing or to be inspired to learn a different style of magic that they're not already doing the right. one thing that you really cannot do at a lecture is watch your perform i mean when's the last time that you bought a dvd you watched it a single time and then you were able to perform that trick mm -hmm. it's just not possible mm -hmm. and so seeing a guy at a lecture who's teaching 10 things trying to retain the information from one to the degree that you can go and actualize it. I just think it's impossible. So I don't even try to do that. Mm -hmm. I explain the tricks, but I hate when I see lectures and it's labored to the point that it's like, I already understand now how it works. 
So either say something that's really going to change my ability to do it or just do the next thing. I just want to see the next trick. So my, my club lecture is really focused on you essentially get an hour-long stand-up show, and then I talk about that show is, is what just I do. And I talk that. about the yeah. tricks, and I unpack it, yeah. Right. And I think that then, you know, people come out to see a lecture, but they, they go, well, we've we got to see the guy's full show. Yeah. And, and my magic is not for magicians. I do the thing that I really do in real life. And at a convention, I couldn't, I can't hide behind that. They booked me for my full show on right. Thursday night, so I did what I do. And then today, I explained it. But at a magical lecture, I would do a ton of different tricks mm -hmm. and try not to waste too much time on explaining the technicalities beyond really crucial things that are the real reason that thing works. Right. There was something also during the lecture, though, that you were talking about how that it had changed your life. And I believe it was something that Jerry Seinfeld had said. Was that right? Or oh, there's a few things. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld's yes. thing of, um, of writing comedy, he says, what you want to do is if you've got a joke that's 10 words and it's getting a huge laugh, work out how to say it in nine. Mm -hmm. And if that still gets the same size laugh, do it in eight. And if you tell it in seven and the laugh drops, put that eighth word back in and you got the perfect joke. Right. But the thing I think you're referring to is the thing that Rob Zabrecki said that to me. That was it. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. I was working at, so I, one of the things in my lecture is like the five rules to create your own show. And basically they are um, embrace problems and have an idea that you really believe in. Because when you come up against a problem in a routine, if you give up at that point, you'll be joining 50% of people who also gave up. But if you keep going, you already left half the people who tried behind. Wow. And if you encounter another problem then you keep going, you left 70% of people behind. Hmm. And if you encounter 10 problems in a routine, it's a pain, but when you get to the finish line, you're the only person there. And it doesn't matter how fast you finished. It's the only time in a race that it doesn't matter how fast you finish. It only matters that you finish. And so if you get to the finish line and you look around, you're the only person at the finish line or the top of the mountain or whatever it is. And really, originality a lot of the time is perseverance. You've got to be the only person who is willing to put up with the problems. So I always say to people, instead of being put off by problems, you should really embrace them. Because whenever you encounter a problem, it's like, great. That's way fewer people that are going to try and do this thing. So that's rule number one. It's not a race against time. It's a race to finish. It's a race against your own willingness to keep going. Yeah, okay. To Good not advice. To not be put off. And then the other rules are things like um, trust yourself but hire professionals because, you know, you, we're not as talented as we'd like to believe. And with the exception of Lin-Manuel Miranda, if you go to a Broadway show, the person who's singing in that show, they didn't paint the set or choose the costumes or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas magicians, we try to, we paint the set, we choose the costumes, we <laughs> write the lines, we build the props, we do everything. We sell the tickets. Or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and if you want to compete really, truly in the creative space – you can't really do it alone, not if you want to compete on a high level. It's impossible. Right. There are so few people who can do that. Even Darren Brown, who, for my money, is the greatest performer in the history of our mystery genre. You know, he has a huge team of creatives and people that he leans on. Sure. And that's how you get great. So that's one of the rules. And there are, there are things that I unpack like that and explain. But the Zabrecki rule is um, make it personal. And... I was backstage with Rob at a convention. I was lucky enough to be hosting when Rob was the um, closing act. And the best thing for me of being the host is that you have a legitimate reason to talk to all of the other sure. acts. Otherwise, you're going up and saying, no, like, hey, I'm a big fan and can we <laughs> hang out? You know, I yeah. want to be your friend. Yeah. Whereas when you're the host, at least you've got, hey, I have to introduce you. That's you know, right. and, that's, and so that's good. And so 
I was lucky enough to know Rob already, actually. I'd met him at the Magic Castle. He actually brought Jason Sudeikis to my show at the castle. Wow. I don't know if he, like, hey, well, let's go and see this British guy, but they happened to be in my mm-hmm. show at the castle. And so Rob and I became friends through that, and we, you know, con- contacted a few times. But Rob and I share a love of silent movies and Harold Lloyd and The Shining and mm-hmm. loads of things like that. So I was backstage talking to Rob, and I said, um, what made you pick that particular track? It's really unusual. And he said, it's just a song I, I always loved. And I said, so why that and not something else? And he said, well, if you fill your show with things that you genuinely love, you never have to fake your enthusiasm. And I thought, gosh, that's good. And I took that, and immediately... I my cigar box juggling that I do, I took those cigar boxes and I would stain them all to be slightly different colours and I put the masking tape on them was all different colours. So they're already they looked like genuine cigar boxes because right. all cigar boxes you can't help the fact that they're the same shape and size. That's mm-hmm. you, you need that for the trick to work. Right, right. But the aesthetics of them, typically they all look the same, so I wanted to make them all look different. And then beyond that I started putting like fragile stickers on them or travel stickers or things that made them look like they'd been shipped, you know, yeah. sent through airports. And then I got all of the logos from my previous shows and I got them engraved with a laser engraver by this guy and so all of my cigar boxes, from a distance it looks like the cigar box company brand, but actually it's previous show logos. And I realize now that I don't just love those props, I'm in love with those props because they're my own history. And then I took my suitcase that I have on stage. It's like a nice um, brown suitcase. With kind of an old-fashioned steam trunk. Like an old-fashioned steam trunk, but it's like a, a there's a word for it. I can't remember what the brand is, but it's like a nice suitcase that you could um, – it has like leather straps on it and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that keep it closed. And it's got my act in it. But I took that and I got travel stickers from – Uh, Nashville when I performed there I got a Nashville sticker when I performed here I got an Ohio State sticker Chicago like any Edinburgh fringe any place that I performed I got those stickers and so it looks like the the classic travel case covered in travel stickers Mm -hmm. but all of those stickers are places that I really did my show and so when I look at that case now on stage it's not just a travel case it's my history and the cigar boxes are my history and when I do chop cup and I wear a fez and I have a banner that says the world greatest cup and ball trick the fez is a nod to Tommy Cooper who's a British magic icon and the chop cup is a nod to Paul Daniels who's one of my you know heroes in magic doing that trick and the banner that I have looks just like Carl Ballantyne the great Ballantyne's banner and it's a nod to him. And that trick is full of influences and little aesthetic nods. So when I perform that trick, I'm not performing that trick by myself. I'm performing it with my heroes all around me. And so what Rob said about make it personal is that really you have to find ways to insert tiny pieces of yourself into every nook and cranny, every prop, every line, every track, every word you say, every reason that you do the trick. And if you really do that, but you don't say to the audience, these are all the places I performed, and these are the logos. And they, Don't tell them. The affection that you have for those things will, come through. will just come across. Because yeah. like Rob said to me that day, I found a way for me that I never have to fake my enthusiasm. I walk, And even my introduction, my pre-recorded introduction, uh, I mentioned him already. It's Taylor Hughes, my best buddy. Mm-hmm. Every single night I do my show, and the last thing I hear is my best friend in the world say, Please welcome Mark James. And my friend's voice brings me onto the stage. That's nice. If we ever have a row, it's going to be a bad show. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, my best friend introduces me every night, even though he lives 5,000 miles away. (laughs) So um, it's a great way to do that. I always say to kids performers and people like that, like, get get your kid to record your intro. You know, please. It's just... 
Find ways they to relate to the yourself. audience also because if That's you're right. talking to kids and they've got a child who's introducing you, it sounds great. Yeah, and if you you know if you're going to do a book test, some examples, you're going to do a book test. You can buy marketed book tests, and there are mm-hmm. loads like the Zanman book test. They got Sherlock Holmes, Wizard of Oz. Right, they got right, those right. things. But also, I mean, in my lecture, I have a book test that you gimmick yourself. It's like flashback, but you you kind of make it yourself. If you're going to make the the way that the book test works yourself, you can use any book then. And also, if it's, a, if it's a book test where you're peaking and you don't rely on forcing a specific word, why not get out a pile of 10 of your favorite books and talk to the audience about, oh, this book is that, and talk, explain your passion and then say, we're going to do a trick with these books. And then you've inserted yourself in. If you need to select members of the audience, throwing a Frisbee is very corporate, but throwing out a Mickey Mouse you know, plush teddy that you've had since you were six years old, mm-hmm. immediately now that's way more personal. Throwing out, you know, a soft plushie of Buzz Lightyear or Woody or something right. that has, or maybe like, a, you know, my, this was my kid had this their whole life and, and that we always took it on vacation with us and they carried it around and, and then they went off to university and they left it behind. And I realized that it wasn't their security blanket, it was mine, you know, so mm-hmm. here it is, but you know, something like some way to insert some real story that tells the audience something about you. Every single part of your show should be another way to take a layer off the onion. Every trick should just teach them something about who you are. And if at the end of the show they had a great time and they know more about you, to me, I think that's a success. And so things like using books that you love, using a plush teddy bear to throw out to select audience members, any way that you can inject yourself into that show is leaps and bounds above being better at split fans or Mm -hmm. doing that killer move with the billiard balls that nobody else can do. They're great things. And if you can combine them both, you're really going to do well. But I'd work on getting yourself in the show before before the rest of it, I think, maybe. I Great know. advice. And the fact that you recognized that and took that to heart and actually yeah. it changed your life and your show. And speaking of the show, then also, you talk a lot about the arc of the show. I'm thinking like of uh, uh, Henning Nelm's um, Magic and Showmanship in which that he's talking about the arc, about uh, building up the audience and then plateau and then having some more. Yeah. And you've got different kinds of things also that you talk about where you have a uh, part was pathos. You have a little bit of a something, right. you know, so... Walk us through that a little bit. Well, I looked at my set lists from years of performing because I write everything down on paper and I keep them in books. And a lot of the time for shows, I'll write in a notepad the name of the show, the place I was performing and the date, you know, so I can look back at like, oh, last time I did that place, I was here. Not for my general touring stuff, but if I'm at the Chicago Magic Lounge, I still have the set list of when I did that. So if I go back, I know what I did last time. I do that with my corporate because sometimes I go back to the same company, obviously. Uh, There are some things I want to keep, just like you say, you may change 50% of that, but you keep new stuff. And I'll score those too and I'll write down things that created problems. Mm. Like I, I used to do a thing. It was a, it was basically the toxic trick, you know, the, sure. um, the yeah, calculator. calculator right. And the audience would estimate how many jelly beans they thought were in a jar. Mm-hmm. And nine audience members would guess and we'd add them all together and divide it by the nine people so that you get an average of their guesses and the average of their guesses turned out to be exactly right. But then I couldn't fly with that one time. I was going to the castle. It was very heavy and all of those yeah. things. So I decided to have the audience guess how long a ball of string was. How long is the string that makes up a ball of string? Because in the UK, we have this phrase, how long's a piece of string? Hmm. If you say to your mother, like, um, what time's dinner going to be ready? She'll say, well, how long's a piece of string? What it means is, I don't know. Don't know. Like, leave me alone. It'll be ready when it's ready. The same as we have a phrase, if you said to somebody, would you rather do a show far away 
that and you're on stage early or very close to home but you're on stage late they might say well it swings and roundabouts really and that phrase means they're equivalent to each other but mm. what i found is that that phrase how long's a piece of string you don't have that here and i no. found that out my first show monday <laughs> night at the magic castle and you still had the whole rest of the week to go yeah i've got the ball i've got a ball of string in a wine yeah. glass which is visually a nice yeah, thing right, right. and i say you know that phrase how long's a piece of string and the audience look back at me silent i say you don't have that phrase here in someone says, I never heard it before. And I think, oh, my God, they never heard this thing before. But, of course, I pivot and say, oh, well, in England we have this phrase, and that becomes interesting and charming, and, hey, we learned this thing. Sure. So I didn't take the routine out. And then they would guess how long the ball of string is, and I would show that they were correct. I had it written down. And then later in the show, a playing card from a multiple selection went missing, and I would say, ask me where the playing card is. And they say, where's the final card? And I would say, well, how long's a piece of string? And they go, oh, my God, and the final card is inside of the ball They're of string. They're gasping at that point. Yeah, so it becomes an impossible location sure. as well so i did that but but on that set list from the magic castle i write down americans do not have this phrase and i score the routine eight out of ten so next time i'm going back i think well i had a nine out of ten thing and a six out so i won't do the thing i thought was six out of ten and so i keep the lists for that reason but one of the things that i noticed when i would look back at all of those lists is that even though the tricks changed what i was trying to accomplish with that trick stayed the same mm -hmm. and i realized that my show the roller coaster is always identical. The tricks, the aesthetic of the roller coaster is different, but the roller coaster itself, the actual track, is always the same. The highs and lows are in the same places. And I did a podcast myself called Talking Shtick, and I interviewed magicians about, very technically, about their performance. I watched their show, the whole hour of it, yeah. and then I dissected it forensically with them, asking them questions about it. And um, it's only on Spotify now, because I took down the, ho the hosting, but Spotify, they hold on to stuff yes. themselves, so it's, it still exists there, thankfully. Um, but what I realized when I looked at their shows is that any performer who's been doing stand-up for a long time, they pretty much followed the rules that I'd found myself by accident. And essentially, you have an attention-getting trick. Right. Then you have a legitimacy prover. Then you have something that brings the audience inside of the show. Then you have a way for them to join in. Then a palate cleanser. Then a pathos. Then your best trick. Then you tell them how they can find you online. Then you do your biggest personality piece, but that isn't going to blow their minds to the point that they can't clap at the end. And for me... In my current show, the attention getter is that I eat fire. Then I mm -hmm. prove legitimacy with the chop cup. And then I bring them inside by teaching them the silk to egg. And then I have them join in with the calculator trick that we discussed before where mm -hmm. everybody gets out their calculator and we all do a thing together. Then the palate cleanser for me is the balloon swallow. And that's important after a trick sometimes because... The calculator trick is so mind-blowing right. that I know the audience want to talk about it and mm -hmm. go like, how did that work? And you can't just stand there on stage and go, I'm going to give you guys a minute to recover. Can't do that. That's like insane. Right. But right. you do need to give them a minute to recover. So something that's fairly mindless and easy to understand. The balloon swallow is a great example of that for me. So I do the balloon swallow there. And then pathos, I do the billiard balls. But my billiard ball routine is lit like a hand shadows act with a torch down on the ground. And I perform it only to the sound of rain. And, and I intro it by saying... In the Benson book, Benson used to say, this next piece is called Psychopathic Suite for P Piano and Triangle. And I always thought that was a really funny way to introduce a routine. <laughs> that sounds like something Rob Zabarecki would say. Right. <laughs> and I read that and I was thinking, oh, I'd like to do something like that. So, so actually I took it and I say, this next piece is called, I, I, I used to have a much longer intro and it was needless. I'd say, this next piece is called, When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a Magician. It takes place on a rainy night in my bedroom when I was eight years old. And then thunderclaps 
boom in suddenly and the yeah. sound of rain and the screen behind me is like a very dark window with rain dripping down it and then I bring out a torch and I shine it around the audience and I say when I was a kid I wanted to be a magician but I didn't have cool props or a big stage or an audience like you guys all I had was simple props a torch that I borrowed from my dad's toolkit when I was a kid and I used to put it down on the ground and like tilt it up and I put it right. in one of those desktop mic stands actually um, and I would pretend that it was my spotlight and I was performing at you know Carnegie Hall or the Radio mm -hmm. City Music call or actually I use British references but you know yeah, pretend right, I was right. performing at one of those places and um, it uplights the trick like a hand shadows act but firstly single spotlight makes the billiard balls look fantastic you can't see that there's a shell involved or anything right. and secondly when that is being projected up you have the trick that they can see but you also have this giant shadow version of it taking place on the wall behind you True. as well and it makes the trick look huge and so I started performing that like that and that's kind of pathos then I do my Rubik's Cube routine which is what I think is the best magic the most magically strong trick in the show mm -hmm. then I pitch my social media and I finish with cigar boxes and I cigar box juggling cigar box juggling yeah and I perfectly fit that theme that I came up with but all of my other shows in the past had different tricks like I would do but follow that same always yeah I had an attention getting thing that wasn't always fire but then I would do cups and balls or chop cup or something like that and then uh, as my legitimacy prover but then when I wasn't doing silk to egg I was doing half dyed silk sure it's the same like let me teach you how this thing works and then I still fool you at the end and in other shows, I've done like um, the whole thing or, you know, I love that Daryl trick, the whole thing, you know, and that's like, yes, right. and I say, you know, magicians, we're trying to confuse you on purpose. Let me explain. So this is a hole, but this is a hole. And I get into that right, trick. Right, right, right. And, and every time the trick that is the third thing in my show is the, 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 the second thing is prove to you I'm good at magic. And the third thing is, but don't worry, I'm going to show you how something here works. Mm -hmm. It's always the same. Every single time in my show, that format is the way I do it. Love I that. never broke it. Wow. And I didn't know that until maybe this year when I really looked at it and thought, gosh, these set lists have all got tr different tricks on them, but they all accomplish the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so for those of you that didn't write it down yet but don't want to rewind back in the podcast, <laughs> attention getter, legitimacy prover, teach the audience how a thing works, Get everybody in the audience involved. Palette cleanser, pathos, best trick in the show. Pitch your social media closer. That's the format. That is great. Man, right there, I think, is worth the price of this uh, podcast for people to have stuck around to the <laughs> end of, uh, of getting that most valuable information. Because as you're saying that, I'm thinking about my own routine and what I'm doing, and I hit on all those things. But I think it just comes yeah. from years of practice and those 10,000 hours you're talking about in which you actually have learned from trial and error. And I have accidentally stumbled upon that same formula without knowing that. A lot of pros, I think, that do a lot of shows will be listening to this and thinking, that, yeah, that's, that that's fits me. my show. Exactly. But a lot of people who are trying to get into that position, hopefully they'll, you know, it's such a jump forward. It really is like right. understanding how to structure a show in a way that maintains the audience's interest this could, and yeah. keeps things moving forward. But also, because the problem is if every trick is like killer, they're worn out right. when you still have right. half an hour right. to go. So you can't do that either. And you have to understand... It's just like Steven Spielberg that only had Jaws once. You know, right. one, one jump scare, basically. Yeah. You don't have... Horror movies tend to have too many jump scares. And you he'll know? say, like... Uh, what's interesting, I listened to Steven Spielberg on a podcast. There's a, have you heard of Desert Island Discs? I have not. It's like a British institution of a radio show, but it's also a podcast. And essentially, they get celebrities and eminent people, politicians, celebrities, artists, neurosurgeons, forensic psychologists, you know, all sorts of people... But they go on there and they talk about 
the idea is you're being sent to a desert island. What eight records mm. and what luxury sure. item would you take to the desert island? And, you know, they choose things like Ricky Gervais was on there and he chose a vat of Novocaine. You know, he said, I'll just spend the whole time out of my mind on the thing. And uh, they say, and they, and they say, which book would you take? But because so many people were choosing the Bible, mm. I should point out, and, and this may be somewhat offensive, but the UK is not especially religious, which I understand, of course, America is. Yes. And Ricky Gervais, of course, is a fairly eminent atheist. Atheist, right. So they say, when what book would you cha- take, remembering that you, you know, get to take the Bible? Because so many people were picking it. So when they said to Ricky Gervais, you get the Bible, he said, well, I won't need toilet paper. And that was like, you know, a oh, fairly, the, fairly offensive to the yeah. American crowd. But it was funny in, in England. So right. he said that. But, you know, he took those things. But Steven Spielberg was on there literally last week. Hmm. And he picked his eight records and he talked about his life. And um, I think he took he took a camera that he'd had when he was a kid, you know, like a Super 8 camera or yeah. something like that for his, uh, for his luxury item. Well, he just finished The Fablemans that's, that's out right, yeah. and right now. So that makes sense about his uh, childhood having all yeah. those videos that he had, had made. They talk about that, that yeah. movie a lot, too. And he talks about that being the hardest movie he ever had to direct because, of course, he said, when I walked into my own living room from when I was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. as an adult, it's like, it's mind-blowing. And he said, I wonder if this is going to be the biggest vanity project in history. <laughs> but he said with Jaws, um, he initially intended to have the shark in there more, but it was so it wasn't very dependable, you know, as a prop and the mechanics yes. kept, yes. And, and he was forced to actually dial down the presence of the shark mm. and actually it's a way better movie for it, he makes that exact point, the best thing about Jaws is that Jaws isn't in the movie the whole time, it's the it's the underlying theme, so yeah, to speak the almost theme. literally, yes, and, and a lot of the time as pro magicians or pro performers like we were just saying then, you do stumble into things, but the people who work the hardest and have the most flight time have the most luck because mm-hmm. luck comes along mm-hmm. every thousand hours. Mm-hmm. So you have 10,000 hours. You got lucky 10 times. You know, you just got to get out there and keep doing it. And you'll find that you get lucky a lot if you work really hard. Good point. Well, as we close the uh, podcast, the name of my podcast is called The Magic Word. And I always like to ask my guests, what is it that's your philosophy? What is, uh, I don't mean a word like abracadabra. What I mean is yeah. what's important to you? My magic word, I guess, would be um, collaboration. I think Mm. it's everything. I think we try to do too much. And one of the huge parts of my lecture was seek criticism, but don't... Don't don't just just, depend upon yourself. Yeah, and don't just to your friend after the show say, what did you think? And they go, you were great. And you think, okay, I'm great then. And that's the end of it. Seeking criticism is like forensically seeking specific criticism. So I ask questions like... To magicians, I'll say, if you could take something out of my act, like Matrix style, where literally it gets put into your brain with no rehearsal or work, and you wake up tomorrow and you own the props, which routine would you take, you know, without having to practice it or ever? And I think that tells me the thing that they think I work the hardest on Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Or rather than saying, what's the worst 15 minutes of this show, which is very difficult for a person to answer if they like you, say... Oh, I'm glad you like my... You know, tonight I did 45 minutes. Next week I have to do this show. It's only 30 minutes. What 15 minutes am I taking out? Like, what's the best 30? Mm-hmm. And then you'll get a real answer to that question. You know, no, that's the, a good way of putting so, it. So I think you have to ask really specific things like, what's the best trick in the show? What's the worst trick in the show? Which trick would you take and put in your act? Mm-hmm. What do you think my strongest 30 is if I have to do 30 next week? Things like that are important. Collaboration. But also... Collaboration early days in a in an individual trick too. So what I, I find it really difficult to rehearse, like to stand in, in a room by myself and say the words out loud that I'm gonna to say to an audience is 
it all, it has always felt stupid to me and I find it really difficult. So the way I get around it is that I video record. I'll set the camera up and I just video record. What I'm aiming to do is get a single perfect performance, technical performance, right. because there is no performance when you're on your own, mm. but a single technical performance of the trick. Because if I can do it once perfectly, I know I can do it every time, sure, surely, if I can do it once. So I'll start the trick from taking the props out of my case like and now this thing and I'll do the trick from how I would get into it in the real show right and the, so that because that involves practicing the transition and everything so I'll get into the trick and I'll do it and the second I make a mistake I put the props down I reset and I start again and I go from the beginning and I'll do that over and over and over again and then I get a perfect performance of that trick and when I get it I put it on YouTube I make it unlisted and I send it to 10 people mm-hmm. and I say what do you think about this and I guarantee if I send it to 10 people I get 5 great lines back straight away or 5 tips or whatever and then I make the video again but I include all of the things that they said to make it as good as I can wow. And then once I have that video, I send it back to them and say, what do you think now? And this time, only five of them reply. Because <laughs> they're like, I wasted 20 minutes on this already. But, you know, the, the people that really care will send, you, will send right. you more stuff. And you're already in a better position. And then what I'll do is I'll take that video. And however long it is, I will use that length to edit the music I'm going to use for that trick. Mm-hmm. Rather than trying to make my trick fit a track, I will edit my track to fit a video performance that I have. And then... I can put that track under the video and I can watch myself do it to that music and work out, oh, that music really works there. Or I can see the bits where it'd be better if the music was quieter there, so I'll move the chorus and I'm a good good cutter and paster of tracks. Because a lot of the time, if you take a track, the intro to the chorus is nearly always the same or Mm -hmm. the middle eight is the same, so you can loop the middle eight for 10 minutes if you want to. So I'll cut and paste and move tracks around so that they fit the highs and lows of my routine. And then I'll start to practice the routine to that track. And then the the two things will fall into lockstep and I'll have, I mean, you'll have noticed in my show, every one of my routines, even if I interact with the audience, finishes exactly on the last beat of the music because I put it together in what I think is a more rounded way to create the routines. And so that way I don't have a routine that I'm stretching out to five minutes when it's only four to Mm -hmm. last that song. (laughs) And also I don't, you know, I I just, I'd rather see a show with 10 tricks in that are five minutes each than see a trick with four tricks in that a show with four tricks in that are 12 minutes each. I like a magic show with a lot of stuff in it. I think the audience do too. I think they want to see a bunch of different things. And I, and I hate when, when I hear performers say, I just bought this new wand. I get six minutes out of it. And I think I would hate to see your show (laughs) when someone (laughs) celebrates that they get six minutes out of something i think why don't you do the best three and then move on like you know Mm -hmm. getting six minutes out of something is no way to choose material like just do more things Mm. it's more fun for you too and also it makes it easier for you to cut and change and if you can't do a trick because someone on the bill is similar to you losing four minutes is way easier to stomach than losing 12 you know that's a good point having better shorter tricks i think is a better format too right well, so going back, collaboration, what mm. you're saying is, is important. Yeah. So that's important to uh, do. So good. Thank you. Collaborate in the beginning when you're putting your material together. Collaborate by seeking criticism from people. Mm. And also collaborate by, yeah, get designers to help you work on your poster. If you can afford it, get a director to take a look at your show. Get somebody who understands fashion or the style to look at what you're wearing. Mm-hmm. Collaboration in every single part of the process is... I think that um, I have a book that I get. I take photographs of. I'm going to ask you about this, actually. Mm. I take Polaroids of magicians, and I have them sign something in the book. And I think Roberto Giobi wrote, um, 
you know, sharing is everything. And somebody else wrote in there, collaboration, uh, Andrew Frost, a great card magician, he wrote, collaboration is a superpower. And I think the people who are the most creative, Roberto Giobi and Andrew Frost is creative right. card magicians, right. they really understand that collaboration is everything. So my magic word is collaborate there we go mark thank you very much it's been a wonderful uh, chat uh, it you. just i can't believe it just this time has gone by when i just looked at my watch over there but i know the listeners are certainly going to be enjoying getting a lot out of this and something that they can apply almost directly yeah and some things are things you need to digest and think about and how that you can uh, change your act with some of the things you put in there so thank you again very much i appreciate your thanks time thanks for having me scott <laughs> i appreciate it and hello to everyone out there in the magic word <laughs> thank you so with magic word podcast that was mark james this is scotty out. Wow, was that tremendous or what? What a full episode. As I suggested early on, you might want to go back actually and re-listen to that, or I hope you took some notes. If you did overlook that one little part where he was saying, "Those these are some of the points of my show and how I structure it, I did post that on the website. So if you go to themagicwordpodcast.com there, you will see that in an outline form uh, with uh, each of those bullet points. Anyhow, thank you, Mark. A lot of really great stuff, great information, and you can see why he is such a success at such a young age. And I want to thank each and every one of you for coming back here from week to week and listening. And also, I want to encourage you, if you would, please, to uh, do, do us a favor. You can actually go to whatever podcast platform that you use to listen to these podcasts and give us a five-star rating with some nice comments. If it's iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is, I'm sure there is a feature there where you can leave a review. And in particular, if you do use iTunes, that helps us grow the podcast and exposes us to a, a wider audience then as well. So thank you guys very much in advance for taking that little bit of time in your day to go off and give us, a, again, a five-star rating and a, a nice comment. And also, if you have not subscribed to the pod letter, please be sure and do that so this way that you know who's going to be coming up from week to week. And whenever we have contests, you are the first to know that then as well. So until next week, stay well, get booked, and remember to trust in those around you to help collaborate on making your act much better. This is Scotty out.